0: Here we are for episode four, and it's just me today, no guest, and still no theme music. So I'm going to browse around for some stock music. Yeah, okay. Okay, that'll that'll do. Good enough for now, until I... Finally commit to something. This is a bit of a sidecar podcast to a YouTube video that I put out talking about the top cell phones of twenty seventeen. I was referring specifically to the iPhone ten, the Google Pixel 2, and the Samsung Galaxy S eight. I know I should be talking about the Samsung Note 8, but I happened to not have that phone. I would love to spend time with it. It might happen, but probably too late. But uh, a lot of the things I'm saying about the S8 do apply, uh, and I'll try to just insert the things I've read about the Note 8 as well. But, uh, you know, Samsung is... is Doing things as a whole, all the phones follow a similar path, and I don't think that it's really necessary to completely divide them. They, they do offer different feature sets. And even though the S8 is the older of these phones we're talking about, it definitely holds its own. It doesn't feel older. It's, it's still great and worth considering. Depending, of course, how new you feel like your phones need to be, because Samsung will be the first to be updating their phone. I'm sure the S9 won't be too far behind the recording of this. But I think you know you're pretty safe buying um, any of these. Really, like there, there's still months left. There's still great phones. So let's get into it here a bit. Uh, the, the biggest thing that I drew attention to in the video is the operating system. This is the reason that you choose between these phones. This is the first decision you make, and it matters a lot more than everything else. To be honest, because we're at a point that all of these flagship phones are amazing. Like real, like really, really great. If any of these. Where the phones released when the first iPhone came out, it would blow our minds. So I think you will be happy with any of these and even some other third-party phones as well. I tried the new LG a little bit this year and I really liked it as well, but I, I didn't spend enough time with it to really evaluate it. Uh, so unfortunately, it's it's not going to be able to be uh, on this list, but that's okay. You've, my point is that you have a lot of really great choices. So First, decide if you are an iOS or an Android person. And you probably already know this. I mean, how long... Do you you still not have your first cell phone? I mean, you may not. You may be uh, younger than I am. I guess I'm kind of assuming that everybody's in exactly the same age range as I am. But this might be your first phone. Okay, maybe you haven't decided if you are into iOS or Android yet. I personally have a very strong preference for iOS and this is the kind of debate that I'm am not really ready to wade into. I think partially because I never commit fully enough to Android to really deeply understand its advantages. But in the time that I spend using these phones, which is um, quite a bit, I, I definitely put them to use. I never find it preferable to iOS. I, I always find a need to go back. And things that keep me on an iPhone are uh, AirDrop. My favorite app, Overcast, which is just a podcast app for iOS. The the basic interface language speaks to me a lot more. It just feels more organized always. Um, A a real advantage, though, that I think Android has is the ability to move icons around to the top and bottom of the screen. This is still very stupid about iOS, especially as our screens get taller. Like with the iPhone X, we have the tallest phone screen yet, and still it wants to push all the icons to the top. So if there's an app you use a lot, you have to keep adding other apps above it just to force things down. This this is crazy. Y- even the default should kind of be the bottom now. That would make more sense technically. Anyway, uh, y- you should really go and spend some time using each phone to decide which you prefer because it's going to have a much bigger impact than any of these hardware things. So this is, this is why I'm not good at reviewing phones specifically is because I'm handing off such a big part of the decision to you. You have to go decide whether you like it or not. And I'm also going to take this as a moment to have a quick tangent about the way I think about reviewing and YouTube and how other people talk about these. If you're watching a reviewer and they're trashing iOS or Android and saying that it's garbage and stay away from it and anybody that likes it is an idiot, um, just never watch their videos again. Like This is not a constructive dialogue about technology. Um, It's also something I don't author rating in the comments, anybody that just kind of throws a flamey troll comment about what they hate about something in either one. Honestly, I just block those people because their (laughs) opinions are completely uninteresting to me. Um, this is a childish idea to be attached to brands like that. So just, you know, work, work with what works for you, use what works for you. Sorry. Uh, Uh, so yeah, Go and choose your favorite OS and let's move on to the more interesting topic of cameras. This is this is probably the biggest thing that draws people to one phone or another and becomes one of the most important lasting impacts of your phone because the photos that you take with this thing might be your only photos of a lot of things. A lot of people don't carry around a bigger camera anymore. They're only shooting with a cell phone. So if your cell phone camera sucks, you might have a lot of bad photos, which I think it happened to a lot of us earlier in the cell phone days, you know, around the 3GS iPhone. But fortunately, the good news is whichever of these you choose, you're not going to be in that situation. These phones all perform really well, but they do things differently. So I want to make sure you understand those differences before you go and buy one. Let's start with the Google Pixel 2 because that's where all of its attention really comes from is that it? it's really outdone itself in how it deals with photography. like It has a whole new approach to it and is really at the front of this computational photography concept. Apple was running with it. They've done a lot in computational photography. There's really interesting things I see it do that my DSLRs don't have the intelligence to do. But in one generation, I think, of the Pixel 2, they have shown us a whole new level of how far it can go. So The most obvious place for this is the way that it does HDR. It's able to pull out overexposed areas of the image and just fully recover them. Not not to the point of an SLR. It's not the same as having a a giant sensor. But it it can surprise you a lot sometimes that out this window that you thought was just going to be pure white, it'll rescue some blue sky. And all three of these cameras try to do it they all have hdr it's on by default now in the iphone but it um doesn't look as good in the others Uh, google really has mastered the subtlety of how to have a really rich image that also feels natural and um I'm, i'm constantly impressed with it sometimes it does go a little far occasionally especially like in low light when it's boosting darker areas it can give a traditional, I'm, I'm doing air quotes here, HDR look of cranking up the shadow and highlight slider in Lightroom, which, you know, we were all guilty of 10 years ago. But um, it's its not that bad. It's its generally fine. And I have very few photos where I'd really complain about it. There are some examples where, and these, these I posted on Twitter, where the night sky, it would bring up the noise so much that it was a little bit unacceptable. It The image looked amazing in the thumbnail because of it. Like it looked like, oh, wow, this can really handle low light. And then if you zoom in the slightest bit or look at it on a bigger screen, there is so much noise going on there. So then I take the same photo with the iPhone and I'm able to recover a lot of that detail just by raising the exposure. And it doesn't have that same terrible noise degradation. And I, I feel like I didn't do this one test with the Samsung as well, but I feel like when I use the Samsung, it performs similarly to the iPhone there, that it doesn't push those shadows, but you could recover them. So the thing is, for a normal person, which is probably you, you're, you're a normal person, right? You will probably see the Google Pixel 2 image and really be more impressed with it. It will jump out at you as having more pop to it, and it's it's more exciting but for photographers, so like me, I don't like to see the computer make a decision to kind of ruin a photo like that for me. I want to be the one to ruin my own photos if I'm going to, and I don't have to, you know, I can just lift the exposure without damaging the file that much. So, you know, you get kind of got to take your pick there. Like, what do you want it to be really easy to get that beautiful photo? Because Google's going to make it a little bit easier for you, but both the Samsung and the uh, Apple phones will do an amazing job as long as you do just a little bit of post and that was actually a surprising reaction I had to some of the videos that I've done. Some people responded with well who wants to do post processing on their uh, mobile phone photos like that You just took them with a phone who cares that's that's crazy to me <laughs> I edit I edit like everything I do on my phone um, anything I post anyway or anything that's important to me always goes through you know some kind of filter but I don't know. Maybe that's just me. I I think it's worth putting that tiny bit of extra effort into really go a long way. And if you're looking for some great ways to filter your photos, uh, one I really like is Filmborn that is designed to really be film emulation. It is supposed to take your image and bring it towards what film would do. And I especially love it for bright outdoor images. And then uh, the other one that uh, I like is VSEO, which is, um, it's got a lot more options. Like there are more filters, a lot more of them are bad, but the good ones are really great. And it uh, has a lot of tools in the app to adjust things. Also Snapseed, uh, what else? Let me pull on my phone here or the Lightroom app. There, there's a few different ones that, that can do a really good job. Lightroom app, especially for just doing things like exposure or white balance, uh, adjustments, or if you're shooting in raw on your phone, which I don't do. One last note about dynamic range. I still prefer to have manual control over my HDR. So even though all these phones want to do it by default, I choose to turn off the default option so that I'm able to flip it on and off because sometimes it doesn't turn it on when you want it to. That's probably the most common thing. Or sometimes it still can make photos look a little bit weird, but the, the algorithms on all these phones have gotten good enough that that isn't a very common problem. So you're safe to to leave it on if you want. You're You're safe to, but if you like to turn it on, make sure it's on when you want it. Um, Yeah. Turn off the auto, turn it on manually. Let's move on to sharpness now. Uh, This is, um, I think this is another place that photographers and regular folks are going to have different perspectives on what is important to see out of your phone image. So to me, I can see what sharpness I will be able to add in to post myself, like uh, when I'm editing the image, which like I said, I always do. Uh, So if I want it to be a bit sharper. I'm happy to add it, and if the image is already extremely sharp, sometimes over sharpened, you're not able to pull that back. So both the, especially the Samsung, the Samsung is the worst at over sharpening. But if you're not a photographer, you might say it's the best at over sharpening. I know a lot of people see what comes out of the Samsung and they just like it more. And you know what? The, The sharpening doesn't really ruin photos. Like it's it's not pushing it too far. As a photographer, I. Would generally prefer to keep that control myself and only add that sharpening back if I want to, so that it doesn't always have that aggressively sharp look. But you know what? It it kind of doesn't matter that much because typically it's still phone photos, right? Like they're not they're not getting destroyed because of this. They just might be a little sharper than I wanted. And it's not so easy to add blur. Like you don't really add blur to photos. That's not really a thing. Um the iPhone is the most balanced of this. It feels like kind of a, a traditional, this is how sharp a photo should look. And the Google, you know, it's funny, actually, I haven't really noticed how sharp the Google is. Like, I, it just didn't really register with me. I think because it's it's a pretty good balance between the two. Sometimes it'll push it a little Too sharp when it's doing that HDR thing I was just talking about. Sharpening is part of what it'll do there. In a normal, well-lit photo, I don't find that it does that. I feel like its sharpness is at a great level. So all these cameras are absolutely sharp enough, but this is about taste. Do you want to have something that's super sharp straight out of camera with no editing? Or do you like to maintain that control yourself so that you can make changes to your photo later? That's you know, personal choice. Moving on to color reproduction. I like the iPhone the most here, uh, especially because of its color management. Um, All of its photos that are taken are uh, P3 compliant, so it has a wider color space, meaning there just are more colors in the photo, especially in the oranges and greens. So if you look at these photos on a P3 display, they can show colors that aren't possible with the other phones. And um, the the other phones also aren't calibrated to that. So this has been a big obstacle in people doing comparisons online. It's something to look out for when you're reading reviews is that if they are saving all of these photos out as sRGB, which pretty much every review I see does this, they want to unify all the cameras so that they can you know level the playing field, so to speak. But this also is a bit of a cheat because it's taking away a real advantage of the iPhone. Like if you're using a Mac computer and an iPhone to view your images, they will look better. There is more color data available. But if you save it out to the lower quality standard that the other cameras use, you're giving up the iPhone's advantage. So P3 color isn't something that's going to like jump out at you. You're not going to be shocked at how vibrant it is, but it's better. When you get used to it, you can clearly see the difference. Uh, So I definitely have to give the best color reproduction to to the iPhone. Uh, another thing to be sensitive to when you're looking at comparisons is that a lot of the time people will try to point out things in the photo that are really um, not quality aspects to the photo, but a decision the camera made when it took the photo. So a lot of people will often say the iPhone is warmer. And this is kind of a, a confusion of what's going on. It tends to prefer a warmer image um, in its white balance setting. So it'll set a warmer auto white balance setting more often. But in certain cases, like in those low light photos that I was just referring to, it went much cooler than the Google Pixel. So you you can't just always say that one does one thing. Uh, You you really have to look at several different image cases, different samples in different places, and see how these cameras treat different subjects. Because a lot of them is just decisions that the camera will make, and it's not one thing. If you're only going based off of a single studio setup, like if you go to DP Review, they are the best resource for photography information in general, but, uh, and, and they put a lot of effort into their tests. But since every test will be in exactly the same lighting situation, um, it's not the same as seeing their real-world examples, which they also test those. So the studio photos don't tell the whole story. They will tell you what happens in a very specific setting, but not in the real world. So you, you have to look at a wider variety of photos to get a sense of what they do. Anyway, there is also not a really important difference in the color between these. I said, yeah, okay, sometimes the iPhone will go warmer, but if you're processing your photos, which I hope you are, <laughs> uh, you can easily compensate for it. And it's it's not unacceptably warm. Like It's often a really nice warmth it's it's doing this for skin tones mostly i think so that people don't end up looking kind of pale and and sickly which is what happens when photos are too blue that can occasionally happen with the other two phones um but i mean not really like they all do a great job you can usually always correct them color is a relatively even playing field except for all those advantages in the p3 wider gamut and the the screen advantage like the, the color management of Apple is multiple generations ahead of Android. In part of it's in operating system thing. Android doesn't properly support color profiles. Uh, they're just starting to get on that bad way. And now the latest Oreo update has, has brought some good updates to that functionality. But um, they've lagged a lot behind Apple. Apple's really done a great job of it. So anyway, Apple gets a, the, a slight win for color. And the last camera thing here is just sort of the photo management of them. Uh, these all have some very different advantages. These are not the same situation. So let's talk about each of them one at a time, starting with Samsung. uh, So a a really big advantage with the Samsung is that it is able to have an external memory card. So you can store a lot more photos on it, uh, more or less infinite photos, because you can just keep sticking new memory cards in there. That's a, a really great advantage and something that I know Apple will never do. And i I don't really fault them for it, but um, if you care about that, Samsung is, is very much worth looking at, uh, whereas both Apple and Google are leaning much more on cloud solutions. Um, and you know what? I'm not convinced that cloud solutions are really there yet. Um, with Google, first of all, if you're not already using Google Photos, regardless of which phone platform you're on, go download Google Photos. And turn it on and let it start backing up your photos for you because it will do free unlimited backups of a compressed file, uh, but very well compressed. Like it's not ruining your photos at all. And it'll just keep backing it up as long as you launch it every once in a while. And this is an amazing service. It it, it does a, a really, really great job of backing up. But I do prefer it as a backup service. Using it with the Google Pixel 2, it starts to become your primary interface for managing photos. And it's got strengths and weaknesses. It's really good at searching your photos. Like its image recognition is amazing. And I started getting used to it now, but I I should bring my mind back to what it was like when this feature was released because it's it's amazing. Like this can find, you know, you type in mountain goat and it'll find specifically a mountain goat. You type in wedding, it finds all your wedding photos Or, or the photos that it finds that aren't from a wedding. You're like, I absolutely understand why you saw that. A little while ago, I mean, I know Game Controller, that was one that I could find. It's amazing what it can do. A big problem that it has, and I kind of subtly referred to this in the video, I hinted at it, is that it doesn't let me organize photos with favorites. I have to add things to a folder. That might be fine for most people that have a normal need for taking a couple photos of a subject. So you've got your kid in front of you, you take five, 10, maybe 20 photos and then you choose the good one of those. Um, but there isn't a way to just favorite the best photo there and then delete the rest. And the way that I shoot is that often I'll have 100 photos or, or 200 photos of a single subject. And I definitely do not need all of them. So it's really frustrating to me that there isn't a really quick way to just get rid of all the rest of the stuff uh, and and only keep what you want. So I don't know, maybe maybe I'm missing something. Maybe there's a workflow that you guys can tell me about on how I can make Google Photos better for me. Because right now it's just kind of backing up with clutter and I I don't really know how to to sort it out. But anyway, Google Photos is a a great tool that everybody should be using. I prefer the Apple Photos app for organization because it's really straightforward. Like looking at the uh, Samsung one, since their apps are, nothing's like really, really official. Like there's the Samsung Gallery app but you can have other apps that give you access to your photo library. And um, sometimes there's weird interactions between different apps that are trying to access it. And this might be my ignorance of Android talking here about why I don't understand why it's trying to do what it wants to do, but it, it does frustrate me sometimes and does slow me down. But Samsung does have all the features that I'm looking for. You can heart things, you can move them into folders. It works great for that. It also works great with Google photos. So Google, uh, yeah, even though it's it's weird because Google Photos, I recommend you have it on any of the other phones, but being stuck with it is your primary interaction point for photos on the Pixel 2 uh thumbs down. I don't like that. Um, I should also mention I've had some major issues with the way that uh the iPhone photo library iCloud library works. Um, it's really got me painted into a corner lately. I was turning it on to optimize storage for a little while to see how that worked. And this is how the Pixel 2 works. It offloads your photos eventually, like once they're kind of backed up to the cloud, just keeps a thumbnail on your phone. Great, right? Totally makes sense. Keeps the storage clear. By the way, I didn't get the larger iPhone, mostly because I have a lot of phones. I didn't want to spend that extra money on it. I probably should have got the biggest iPhone. But so I got 64 gigs and it's kind of been filling up now. So it made sense to turn on optimized storage. Then... I started running into uh, the problem that it would not have images available when I wanted them. Like I'm going to edit this photo that I took yesterday, but it's already up in the cloud. And now I can't just hit edit. It has to download it. And especially with live photos, like I was thinking like, oh, great. I have all this backup. So I'm going to start shooting more live photos, which I I like live photos a lot. But then I turn off optimized storage because I'm sick of waiting to download my photos. and all of a sudden, I still have all the photos I had a minute ago visible, but I don't know which ones are on the phone and which ones are in the cloud. There's no indication of where these photos live. So (laughs) I've gone through a bunch of steps that I I don't want to bore you with here, but I've had to call Apple support to figure out how do I make sure that I have hard copies of all my photos on a computer so that I can delete them off of my phone and know that things are safe in both places. So Be very careful about that optimized storage button. It's much easier to back up your photos manually. Use the iCloud phone backup that backs up your whole phone. But, you know, just be be cautious about letting it take photos off of your phone. Like, really decide if that feature is right for you or not first. And finally, portrait mode. This was started by the iPhone a couple generations back, but now they all have it. And, wow, this is an interesting one. Um it's a feature that I like to play with a lot. I find it really entertaining. Like I like I like to see the look. I like seeing it on other people's Instagrams because it can be nice and it usually fools me in a small thumbnail. But all of these phones still screw up often enough that I feel like I can't trust it. Like if I need a photo to turn out, I don't want to use portrait mode because the odds are it won't. Like there are many things on all these phones that just go totally haywire. They get things completely wrong. Um, the a good example is if there's a busy background. So even if I'm seemingly very easy to isolate, like I I'm not wearing my glasses cause they all trip up on glasses and you know, my hair is not puffy and a mess. It should be really simple to cut out all the edges of me. If there's a bunch of trees in the background, sometimes it'll screw up the background or it'll screw up all the edges. Uh, I was doing it with Christmas lights in the background, totally messed it up. So I don't know. This This feature isn't completely baked yet for, for anybody. I don't lean on it very hard, but a lot of people do. And there's some really substantial differences on how these phones deal with it. Now, what you might think, what I thought, is that the iPhone would have a really clear advantage. It's got two lenses, two you know, full cameras basically side by side, and it uses those to gather depth information. And on selfie mode, it even has the infrared sensor, which is amazing. Like it's gathering so much depth information. It can really tell a lot of the smooth gradients of how far the subject is from the camera, but it doesn't do nearly as good of a job as the single lens Google pixel two, which is shocking to me. Uh, but the pixel works by having little dual pixels, meaning that each pixel kind of has a, a prism, a something, a mirror, a thing, a lens, a lens on every pixel. That splits it into two sides so that there are different angles coming at the sensor in every little photon of light. And by that, it can tell a very small plane of difference of focus. Uh, Google did a really great article demonstrating this. And they have a GIF showing, basically, it's like, here's what the left side of the pixel saw and here's what the right side did saw. And as you flip back and forth with those, you can see the depth yourself. You can see it with your eyes because there's just enough distance between them to, to, to get that depth, even though it's all in one sensor. It's crazy. I, this is the same technology that Canon uses. It blows my mind. Anyway, it works better than what Apple is doing with two separate lenses, which, yeah, again, I'm very surprised. It's, it's just much better at finding the edge of the image and, and cutting it out. And then it is much more aggressive with its blur, with its fake bokeh. But I still think I end up preferring it most of the time because it's cut out so well. It has less levels of depth, so the iPhone can see more of uh, the shape of the room, so to speak. So if something is one foot away, two feet away, three feet away, each of those things will have a slightly different amount of blur applied to them, whereas that's not what the uh, pixel looks like as much. And um, it kind of doesn't matter that much when the the biggest issue with the iPhone is that it's not cut out properly. And I've got to say, everything I've seen from the Note 8, because this feature isn't on the S8, looks... Pretty similar to me to what the iPhone does. Like it, it's different. It screws up in different ways, but a similar amount and has a, a the same kind of approach. It's using two real lenses, and it ends up in a, a very similar place to the iPhone. So, if blurry backgrounds are important to you and you're not going to carry around a big DSLR, then uh, I think you should go with the Google Pixel Two. It definitely wins the the blur race hands down. Now, talking about screens, this was this was a lot of controversy when the Pixel Two XL came out. And uh, I I have access to both. So my wife Anya has the XL and I'm using the Pixel 2, the smaller size. And there were a lot more issues with the XL screen than the 2. I also think a lot of those issues are overblown. Um, I, I know this is a very expensive phone. You're expecting it to be kind of perfect. But the problems with it don't end up bothering me that often. Um, I think that if you're sensitive to screens, you'll, you'll already know you're that person and you're already avoiding the Pixel 2 XL. The color on it is a bit duller. It has a bit more of a, a shift in, in color when you turn it to the side. That, that doesn't matter to me, honestly. I think it's fine for, for that. Uh, the duller colors do kind of bug me and it just doesn't have the best color management. So back to Apple... Apple is killing it. I mean, this is the same stuff I was talking about with the camera, but they just have full color management. It's a P3 display showing a P3 color profile, which I know that the, at least the Google phone is capable of, like the the panel is P3, but the profile is not supported. So you're not actually seeing it. It's like some version of sRGB. Um, I actually don't remember what the... Samsung is displaying. I know it's not. I know it's not displaying P3. I'm not sure if it's capable of it, though, and not displaying. But uh, the Samsung display also looks excellent, missing the color profile information. So if I'm going to rank them, iPhone gets a a clear win on the screen. I mean, especially on the 10. The The OLED display just kills it. If you're talking about the iPhone 8, which I, I kind of could be comparing them here because a lot of things about the eight apply to the 10 and vice versa. Like these are relatively similar phones, despite how totally different the 10 is. Um, But the screen on the eight is LCD. And so uh, if we're looking at the eight, then I would give Samsung the win. But if we're going to look at the 10, then the iPhone 10 definitely gets the win. Let's compare the assistant features a little bit as well. I, on the, on the S8, they added that Bixby button on the side, and you know what? I never used it. <laughs> I um I haven't even logged in because you have to sign up for a Samsung account to to use it, and yeah, I just I just didn't do it. Um, I don't know, maybe because also the way I was using the Samsung, like I don't blame all this on them. The Samsung was never my primary phone for any period. It was uh it was mostly Anya's phone, and so I was using it mostly as a camera kind of. Um so a lot of the sort of daily phone functionality I wasn't really exposed to. I was really it it was mostly a camera to me. Um so I didn't have a need to use the assistant. So I don't know. I I don't like the the way they put that button on it. It's too similar to the other buttons, but as far as how well Bixby works, I don't know. It might work. I expect it's behind the others. Um but who knows? (laughs) Okay. So Let's talk about what I do know, uh, and that's that Google is totally crushing Apple when it comes to the Assistant. Google Assistant, amazing. Like, it just has full access to Google, to the internet, and it can respond with voice to most things that you ask it. I'm constantly amazed at how many answers it can give me. That said, Siri works. I mean, it's not terrible. I do still like using Siri. Um, I just have been amazed a little bit more often by Google. So, you know, both, both are okay. Uh, I do find also, though, that Google dictation has clearly been getting worse lately. I think this is related to the machine learning that it's been doing with spell checks. So there's all these bugs going around, if you didn't run into this, where like a capital I would get replaced by some garbly gook uh, letters on everybody's phones. And it's because the machine learning was adapting to a bug, basically, and, and learning that the way that you spell this word is different. Um, and there's been a bunch of those lately. Uh, an interesting one I can still see is if you type the word teleprompter, it will capitalize some seemingly random letters in it. And somebody pointed out to me that that's how the brand teleprompter writes their name. So it's this, I don't know, it like, it's this weird autocorrect stuff that it has been getting stranger and stranger since machine learning has been taking over. Anyway, I can see this happening with dictation as well. It's gotten more weirdly wrong lately. Like I I can see it just getting confused. So Siri, I can tell they're working on it because of the machine learning. It's useful and usable, but Google is, is, is better basically. And by the way, a lot of my interaction with that is on the Google home mini. Um, you know, you can squeeze the Google pixel two to access it. That works pretty well. Um, but I, I really enjoy having a mini in the house and also have a Chromecast that can um you know i can say play netflix whatever um, so you know it's it's in- interesting i like the home integration google is ahead in this whole department let's see what apple can do when the home pod comes out i also wrote down performance as something to compare but i don't know why i said that i mean these things these things are all great like you can't you can't tell like the iphone i find to just be kind of more consistently snappy when you see it doing uh augmented reality stuff it's very impressive um, it, it is the fastest. It benchmarks the fastest out of them, but it's, um, it's almost not an interesting difference. Like, okay, they're, they're all great. They're all fast, expensive phones. So, you know, they, they work as well as you expect them to. So the last thing is unlocking your phone, which wasn't such a controversial thing until recently. This year is when everybody really decided to try something new. We were used to having a fingerprint reader on the front. It had gotten very good, but now everybody's done something different. We have them on the backs, uh, The Samsung S8 loses in this department because they put it right beside the camera. So every time you reach for it, you are potentially smudging your lens. Bad decision. So on the Samsung, I actually don't lock it. Uh, There's less sensitive data on there because like I said, I don't use it as a phone. So I don't need to lock it as much. But uh, yeah, that's not where a fingerprint reader should be to me. There are other functions, um, other ways to unlock the phone, like it can do facial recognition, iris recognition. But even Samsung acknowledges it's not doing it in the same way Apple is. It's not nearly as secure. You can't confirm purchases, for example. You can't, I don't know, do other stuff. It's not a a real um, biometric in the way that fingerprints or facial ID on the iPhone are. So yeah, Samsung please try to catch up, do it better next time. Google now kind of feels like the most traditional. There's just a fingerprint reader on the back and it's really fast. Like when my finger makes the right contact with it, it's open quick, really quick. Every time I'm always impressed how fast it is. It does. I kind of miss it more often than on my uh, previous iPhones, like on the iPhone eight. Uh, like I'm just misplace my finger a little bit. Um, that can be annoying. And really annoying, this isn't biometric, but is when you enter your password, you have to do a check mark at the end of a four-digit password. So any four-digit password is now five digits. It, it That's crazy to me. I have no idea how that got out the door. It's the worst designed part of that phone. Anyway, it doesn't ruin the phone, but it's, it's dumb. Uh, and then now we get to the iPhone X, the biggest change of all of them. This is a little personal as well, depending on how you feel about learning new technology. This is uh, the first version of a product. You can kind of tell sometimes, but it works great. Like it, it really does work great. Most of the time it gets it right. Um, I do have to enter my passcode more often than I did previously on um, my iPhone 7, but um, you know, not not that often, not that much. And when it's working, it makes the whole experience much more intuitive and it is it is a better experience in the Most average use cases of just flipping up and it's there. It's really great. They nailed it. It's going to get better soon. Uh, I want to see this come to all the other Apple products. Uh, It's going to be especially good on a laptop or an iMac where you don't have to add a notch for it. Um, Also, I know some people have complained about the security of having facial ID this is crazy. I mean, it's if you are worried about that, you should be just as worried about your phone just being on all the time and watching all your surroundings and recording everything you say because the, the, it's it's the same kind of issue. Like you can map someone's face from an RGB camera. In fact, that's how the animojis work. Is they they're mostly using RGB data uh, by that, I just mean, a normal camera. So, honestly, just Don't worry about it. It's it's being stored on a secure part of the chip that the rest of the hardware doesn't have access to. None of the apps can actually see the data of your facial map. It can only get basically a confirmation, yes or no, um, and some some basic basic like animation and depth stuff as well. So, don't worry about security. It's it's pretty great and uh, possibly stronger than uh, what fingerprints were. So, moving forward with Apple security, I feel pretty great about it. And that's it. That's uh, that's a long time to talk about phones. But uh, it's a big decision. I mean, the phone is the computer you bring with you everywhere you go. It's the camera you bring with you everywhere. It's a really important tool. So I think it's worth spending some time thinking about it. I'm not going to be doing phone episodes all the time. Um, Just, you know, when it matters. Because right now we're kind of at, at the point that the major releases are all out. We have all these great phones and the new ones aren't coming too soon. So I think you can kind of go out in the new year and make a decision about what your 2018 phone is going to be. Thank you so much for listening, you guys. Come follow me on Twitter. I'm at Stallman, and I'll see you next time. I'll talk to you next time. I'm not going to see.